Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. Now, music has long been known as a method of communication and bonding. It has the ability to synchronize our bodies and stimulate neurochemicals in the brain that help us feel connected to each other. Studies have shown that it can create feelings of group identity and unity, as well as a sense of bonding and positive associations with other group members. But is this creation of unity and goodwill something that can be used on a large scale, maybe even an international scale? Can music actually be used to decrease tensions between nations and bring in diplomacy? This question was put to the test in 2008, when the New York Philharmonic gave an unprecedented concert in Pyongyang, North Korea. And to learn more about this historic concert and its effects, I have invited back my favorite Juilliard-trained musician and Harvard-trained historian, Dr. Jonathan Rosenberg. You may remember him from last year's episode entitled, When Music and Politics Meet, and I'm honored to welcome back for this conversation. He is a professor of history at Hunter College and the CUNY Graduate Center, where he teaches 20th century U.S. history. His book, Dangerous Melodies, Classical Music in America from the Great War Through the Cold War, explores the relationship between art and politics in the 20th century America by examining the intersection between the world of classical music in the United States and the wider world. In addition to his numerous scholarly articles and reviews, Jonathan has written about the way classical music intersects with both international and domestic affairs for the LA Times and the Wall Street Journal. Before receiving his PhD in history from Harvard, Jonathan, a graduate of Juilliard, worked as a classical musician. So Dr. Jonathan Rosenberg, thank you so much for being here and welcome back to Musicians Versus the World. It's a great pleasure to be here again, Christine. I'm looking forward to our conversation and um, I thank you for that kind introduction. Um, now, the last time we spoke, uh, Russia had just invaded Ukraine and the music world had started canceling concerts for many like pro-Putin musicians. And we were really yes. seeing the intersection of mm -hmm. music and politics play out in real time and in a very acute way. But this past year, you have been looking a little bit farther back in history about another sort of political musical intersection. Yes. How did you start looking into this Korean concert? Uh, well, you're absolutely right. It has been a, a year in which people have been thinking about and, and debating this question about the relationship between uh, music and politics. The, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought this to the fore. And um, it's something that I have been interested in for a long time now. Several months ago, a couple of uh, historians who work in Europe, one is based in Spain and the other in the Netherlands, got in touch with me. They knew that I had written about cultural diplomacy, about the relationship between music and world politics. And they asked if I would be interested in contributing to a volume that they were putting together on the subject of cultural diplomacy after the Cold War, that is in the post-Cold War world. And I thought it sounded like an interesting uh, project to be part of. They asked me what I'd like to write about. I gave it some thought and I thought it would be interesting to write about the New York Philharmonic's trip to North Korea in 2008. At the end of my book, Dangerous Melodies, I touched very briefly on that trip, just in the sort of concluding section. Right. And I'd, I'd read a little bit about the trip at that point, but not much. It was something I thought was quite intriguing, um, but it wasn't my primary focus. So when 
I was asked to make this to be part of this current project. I thought maybe I would explore that more fully, uh, which I did with the help of the New York Philharmonic's archivists. They were extraordinarily helpful. And um, that's how this came about. And I've written this, uh, a chapter which will go into this uh, book. The book will be published perhaps later this year or early the following year. Can you tell us a little bit of background about this concert and why it was such a big deal for the New York Philharmonic to go to North Korea? It really was a big deal, I must say. Um, um, First of all, American symphony orchestras have long traveled to other parts of the world, playing concerts, going on tours, and so forth. As I wrote about this in Dangerous Melodies, that symphony orchestras were sent by the U.S. government during the Cold War to advance America's foreign policy objectives. Uh, Musicians in those orchestras believed that by performing in other countries, they could help sort of bring people together. It would enhance international cooperation and so forth. So in that sense, the journeys of symphony orchestras overseas, that was not a particularly novel idea. What I think is especially interesting about this trip, the trip to North Korea in 2008, and there are a number of things about it, but one of which is that North Korea was and is a very isolated country. It's not really part of the family of nations, as it were, you know, by choice. Mm-hmm. And so when a, when a symphony orchestra in the past played in Western Europe or even behind the Iron Curtain or in China, which orchestras did, uh, they, were, they were, in a sense, playing in uh, parts of the world, even if those places were not friends of the United States, were foes of the United States, They were playing in parts of the world with which people were somewhat familiar. But by sending the uh, New York Philharmonic to North Korea, to Pyongyang, in February of 2008, this was a very different kind of trip, a trip to a land that none of these people had had visited before, with the exception there were some members of the orchestra uh, who were of Korean heritage, and some of either them or their families had been had lived in and and immigrated uh, to the United States from Korea. So there was a small contingent of people in the orchestra that were familiar with Korea, but overwhelmingly the musicians and the Philharmonic administrators were not familiar with it. It was, as I said, an alien environment. And, And let's be clear, a very, very brutal and barbaric regime, um, which is where they were going to play. So for that reason, I think it was a very different kind of trip. And in addition to that, um, as I researched this more fully, I came to realize that the trip itself engendered quite a bit of, of discussion and debate in the United States, often rather heated debate on whether the Philharmonic should even be traveling to North Korea, whether that made sense or whether it was just helping to legitimize the North Korean uh, regime. I should also say that the the context for the trip was that it was intended to advance a set of negotiations that had been taking place, the six-party talks. This is the kind of diplomatic context. The six-party talks, which began in 2003, were intended to lead to North Korea dismantling its nuclear weapons system. Mm. Uh, that was the aim of these negotiations. The, the six parties were the United States, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, Russia, and China. And these talks, which, as I said, began in 2003, had sort of waxed and waned. There had been some progress, then not much progress. But by 2007, 
the talks seemed to be making progress. And it was hoped that if the New York Philharmonic went to North Korea for a brief visit to play a concert and do a couple of other things, that that would help to kind of contribute to this momentum in the talks. And that might contribute, in fact, ultimately to the desired outcome, which was to dismantle the nuclear weapons program of the North Koreans. So that's the sort of context in which the trip develops. And and that's what American policymakers were hoping the Philharmonic's trip could help to uh, enhance the prospects for a successful outcome in these negotiations. Wow. So that is a lot of pressure on a trip. Yes. So it was sort of a diplomatic show of goodwill to have the Americans come and for North Korea to allow them to come. Yes. I think maybe the critics had a point that it was in a way legitimizing North Korea, but when you're working on diplomacy, that sense of goodwill is very important, especially when you're talking about something as dangerous as nuclear weapons. Showing that trust and that goodwill is very important and sharing culture is a good way to do that. Yes. Certainly among the musicians in the orchestra, there was actually initially some trepidation about going to North Korea, which is understandable. Um, they, They themselves were worried, concerned about the trip, Mm -hmm. partly for their own safety and also for what it might help the North Korean regime accomplish, which was to legitimize it in the eyes both of it, particularly of its people and the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there was this, at least initially, some reluctance on the part of the musicians. The principal diplomat or the most important diplomat in this story is a man named Christopher Hill. He had been the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to South Korea, but now in 2004, I believe it was, he'd become the lead negotiator for the United States in the six-party talks. And Christopher Hill was very much in favor of this trip. He thought it really could be quite constructive in what he was, with respect to what he was trying to achieve in the negotiations. And in fact, he came up to New York and had a meeting with the Philharmonic to explain to the orchestra, to to some extent, to allay their concerns and explain to the orchestra why he thought this was a good idea and what could come of it. So that's quite intriguing because elements in the U.S. government, the State Department particularly, were in favor of the trip. They ultimately convinced the, the musicians of the orchestra that this was a good idea and Again, from the musician's perspective, they were inclined to support the idea because, as has always been the case with musicians, I think, particularly in this fear of symphonic diplomacy, they have the belief that these concerts, these journeys, these visits, this kind of outreach can be constructive, can help to bring people together, can help to enhance international cooperation. Once the musicians of the Philharmonic got over some of their reluctance to do this, they thought, okay, this is a good idea. We can contribute to international cooperation, and uh, isn't that a good thing? And after a bit of convincing, the musicians could see the potential good that the trip could do, and everything seemed to be going well. However, not everyone in the U.S. was on board with the idea, and that caused some major rifts and problems for the trip. There were those who thought this trip was wrongheaded. 
we should not be engaging with the North Korean regime like this. We should not be sending a grand American cultural institution, the New York Philharmonic, one of the great orchestras in the country, to North Korea because, as they said, it would legitimize this vicious regime. It would be a a coup, as it were, a propaganda coup for the regime itself, for Kim Jong-il, the North Korean dictator. One of the people who was most forceful and assertive in in making this case was a guy named Terry Teachout. He was a columnist uh, for the Wall Street Journal, and he wrote quite energetically in criticizing the Philharmonic for this idea. He was highly critical of the notion. He thought it was just really quite naive that, that, that both the State Department and the Philharmonic itself imagined that this could be in any way constructive. Now, there certainly were people in the sort of commentariat, pundits and so forth, who believed that this was a good idea. But Terry Teachout spearheaded, in a sense, this a critique of the trip, and others certainly followed. And the language that he used was angry, I would say. The headlines across the country among those within those papers that were critical of this trip were, were really quite brutal. One of them, I recall, was it described it as the New York Fool Harmonic. Oh. The Despot Serenade, Out of Tune, How Pyongyang Plays the West. So there was a lot of opposition in the country to the trip. And I know from speaking to members of the their administrative team, this certainly made people uncomfortable. They, you know, they're an orchestra. They didn't want to be in the middle of a heated uh, political debate. The other thing that happened, which was rather problematic, is that the conductor of the New York Philharmonic was a very set, one of the most celebrated conductors of his generation, a man named Lauren Mazel. Maybe some of your uh, listeners will be familiar with Lauren Mazel, a great conductor. And he made some, how can we put it, um, perhaps ill-advised remarks prior to the trip, which created a quite a mm. furor in the United States. He was uh, being interviewed, I think it was an Associated Press interview, and I, I, wanna, I, I want to do Mazel justice, and I want to just quote what he said. Uh, directly, because he was trying to explain why it was important to make this trip. And he was trying to, in a sense, beat back some of the criticisms made uh, of the orchestra for making the trip. And this is what he said, and this created a huge uproar. He said, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw bricks, should they? Is our standing as a country, the United States, is our reputation all that clean when it comes to prisoners and the way they're treated? Have we set an example that should be emulated all over the world? If we can answer that question honestly, I think we can stop being judgmental about the errors made by others. This created a huge, a rapid and hostile reaction because there were those who said he's confused, He's ignorant. He's engaging in moral equivalence between the United States and North Korea. And many people weighed in on this, uh, both columnists, certainly, but also sort of scholars of international relations. And they, among other things, kind of lectured Mazel on the nature of the North Korean regime, laying out just how brutal and vicious it was, often in rather uh, graphic and unpleasant detail. Mm. So this really was highly problematic. 
Mazel attempted somewhat to, to mitigate some of this. He pulled back from it, tried to sort of, he didn't pull back entirely, but he tried to kind of explain maybe with a little bit greater clarity what he was talking about. But nevertheless, it did a lot of damage. And people who perhaps had even been somewhat uh, lukewarm about the trip now thought that it was a mistake. If this is what the conductor of the orchestra, if this was the oh. way he understood what was going on, perhaps the whole thing should be called off. Well, it wasn't called off, but it did engender a ferocious debate in the country. Wow. Yes. I had not heard about those comments. I can see how that would not go over well. It didn't certainly did not go over <laughs> well at all. Now, the concert itself, yes. if I remember correctly, they also did master classes with yes. uh, North Korean musicians, and and it was broadcast live, which was the first time that had happened out of anything out of North Korea, yes. and they actually allowed journalists in. And so was that a surprise to some of these uh, people who were saying, no, this is a terrible idea? Did that placate them a little bit, knowing that, that North Korea was doing some concessions and the music that they chose was very, very... American. Um, they had Gershwin, American in Paris, Dvorak's From the New World. These are very American style yes. musical choices. So I think it's hard for uh, the North Korean government to spin that as that they're paying homage to the North Korean government, although they did play um, some North Korean yes. music and traditional music. Did anything that they did help to kind of assuage the critics of this? I don't think the critics were assuaged by the the nature of the concert itself, their their contention was that the whole idea of sending yeah. an American cultural institution over was, as I said, wrong-headed. But the Philharmonic established certain sort of criteria for going, and they said these are, you know, we we demand these things. The concert needed to be broadcast live. Western journalists went into the country and cover the concert, they would be able to transmit their stories back to their respective countries. The Philharmonic would be allowed to bring all of its musicians into the country. That was a question of whether some, some of the Korean musicians would be allowed to come. And uh, they would also be able to choose the repertoire. So all these criteria were accepted. As you said, the concert included a, a sort of a, a variety of music as an encore, Bizet, and Bernstein, the overture to Candide, which was kind of a tribute to Leonard Bernstein, the longtime conductor of the New York Philharmonic, who had made many uh, uh, celebrated tours around the world. And then the concert concluded, as you mentioned, with mm. a performance of a Korean folk song, Arirang, um, mm -hmm. which really proved quite moving to the audience. Um, this was, it was kind of arranged for the orchestra. And you can, in fact, you can watch, there is a, a documentary on this. Is you can watch videos of the concert, which perhaps you've done and your listeners can do. You can Google that and it's easy enough to find. And you can see how moving it is for the North Korean audience, particularly when this folk song is played, mm -hmm. a folk song which people, I guess, across Korea, both Koreas were familiar with. That was among the most moving parts, I think, of this concert. Um, once the concert ended, the North Koreans in the audience and musicians on the stage were waving to each other. And it really is tremendously moving to see this. Um, and, and among the orchestra administrators I spoke to, and certainly among the musicians, this was a very, very powerful part of the the entire concert experience. And after all of the critiques and stipulations, 
The concert was performed well, and both the audience and the Philharmonic were touched by the experience. What happened later in the tour further showed the personal connection music can bring across cultures. There were master classes and, and that sort of thing, which again, you know, deepened the connection between the musicians of the Philharmonic and, and the musicians in North Korea. And this is quite touching when you read about this. Um, Lauren Mazel conducted that on that, that day, the I guess it was the 27th, he conducted the State Symphony Orchestra and sort of, you know, gave a, a kind of conducted them in a rehearsal. I think they did uh, Wagner and Tchaikovsky. Uh, Mazel said he was very extremely impressed by how good the orchestra was. Um, and then there were the string players, four string players from the Philharmonic played with four North Korean string players from professional musicians who they played the Mendelssohn Octet which was meant to be kind of a coaching session, at least in its initially, but it turned out that these North Korean string players were so extraordinarily good that they just played the entire piece and right through, and, and in effect, it became kind of a, I guess, an unexpected performance. And again, the Philharmonic musicians, the concertmaster was Glenn Dictoro. He spoke about how extraordinarily impressed he was with, with their playing and how sensitive they were as musicians. And then there were many uh, members of the orchestra who gave sort of lessons, coaching sessions to uh, young North Korean sort of conservatory musicians. One of the most touching that I read about was by Thomas Stacy, who was the New York Philharmonic's English horn player. He gave a uh, an oboe lesson to a, a young North Korean, I guess the guy was probably 17 or 18 years old. And he gave this coaching session in which he was coaching the North Korean in a Handel oboe sonata. Thomas Stacy wrote about this later. He wrote up a report about the trip, and he describes this lesson that he gave to the North Korean uh, student. And he said, and I think this is quite telling because it captures what many of the musicians in the orchestra felt about what they were doing there. He reflected on the significance of the trip, and I'm quoting what Thomas Stacy wrote. He said, The Philharmonic's bottom line is beauty-making, and beauty does not know geographic boundaries and politically imposed lines of demarcation. I think that we should never underestimate the transformative power of art. And that, I think, really quite brilliantly uh, encapsulates what the musicians thought they were doing on this trip. They were they were there to, as he says, sort of create beautiful music, and that doesn't know geographic boundaries. That can transcend boundaries and it can tr transcend other um, impediments. And that's what he and I think the musicians and the orchestral administrators and so forth believed. That was their mission, as it were. They they did not see that they had a political mission or political objectives. That was for someone else to take care of. They were there to make music, to communicate with people. And in a sense, that was it. Yeah. Those stories of just like the one-on-one -on -one connection or the connection between the audience and the musicians and yes. the horn players waving for yes. however long <laughs> before they left the stage. Those just really, 
they really warm your heart and you think, oh, this is wonderful. This is what music should be. This is true diplomacy here. And then the U.S. Bush administration in public played down the significance of the concert. And the White House spokeswoman, Dana Perino, said that any future cultural exchanges would depend on North Korea's cooperation on the nuclear issue. Yes. Doesn't that just kind of take the wind out of the sails? Yes. Well, that that is quite interesting. There, there, and in the research I did, I, and I quote this in the chapter I wrote, particularly pri- just prior to the trip, Dana Perino and even Condoleezza Rice, um, who would be the Secretary of State, um, they they did kind of, I guess, ratchet down the expectations. They said, "Look, you know." okay, we're going to do this trip, but we're not expecting a lot. At the same time, Condoleezza Rice elsewhere did speak about the potential for cultural exchange, that cultural exchange, cultural diplomacy could contribute to progress in interstate relations. So she, she, in a sense, a bit has it both ways, I think. But Well, she's a musician as well, so... Yeah, that's true. She she actually is a gifted classical pianist, a very serious classical pianist. Um, but it is true that if one listens to this rhetoric, it is a bit jarring because you think, oh, do they believe this is going to work or not? And I think what this reflected was tensions in the administration over the potential efficacy of this trip and whether, in fact, it should uh, even be undertaken. Because there were those, and I can speak a little bit about this, who were um, not all that supportive of the trip, to say the least. And in fact, Perhaps the most surprising thing I encountered as I was doing this research, the United States at the evening concert did not have an official representative there. There was no U.S. government official who came to North Korea while the orchestra was was there. Oh, they just and, and that surprised the Philharmonic. They assumed or hoped that there would be some representation there, but no one was there. I don't know why this was. Perhaps it was Vice President Cheney who had great reluctance about this relationship between the U.S. and North Korea. Um, but Christopher Hill, the ambassador, was not there. And again, I think this reflects the tensions within the administration about the efficacy of doing, of engaging in such things, particularly specifically with a regime like the uh, Pyongyang regime. Mm. And um, so politics very much intruded on this and there were no U.S. government representatives. There were some former U.S. government officials who were there, but they were there, I, I think, largely of their own volition, but no official representation by the U.S. government. Mm. Yeah, well, and I don't claim to be an expert on politics whatsoever, but as a historian, looking back on that and knowing these beautiful stories that came out on the personal level between the the North Korean musicians and the American musicians and everyone involved, it seemed that this concert and this tour was a very, very influential and a beautiful thing for them. But now looking back on it almost 15 years later, do you think that it made a difference? Do you think that this was a, a success in as far as diplomatic concerns go? Well, This is where I have to say that it pains me to have to share these thoughts with you. I am, as you mentioned earlier, I I, I was a musician. I was trained as a musician, went to music school and worked as a musician for many years. So there's a side of me that would love to 
share with you the idea that music can do all of the things that people hope it can do, that it can can transform international relations, it can make states come together and cooperate in ways that they hadn't before, that classical music, a concert or a, a, a classical music tour can achieve all of those things. I would like nothing more than to be able to say that it can do all that, that music can accomplish that. However, <laughs> um, my work as a historian and the study that I've sort of devoted to these uh, examples of particularly symphonic diplomacy leads me to conclude that these sorts of trips really don't accomplish all that much in the diplomatic realm. Sure, people heard beautiful music, the musicians communed with the audiences, in, in this case in North Korea, the North Koreans participated in this wondrous shared experience, the kind of thing that music obviously can uh, accomplish. And that, that's all for the good. And I think you know, the United States and other countries should continue to engage in those sorts of activities. But if you're asking if the trip itself contributed in, in any meaningful way to diplomatic progress, I think the answer is rather clear which is to say there has been virtually no diplomatic progress with North Korea. The, the six-party talks broke down shortly after the Philharmonic trip. Um, now, of course, that's not, that has nothing to do with the New York Philharmonic trip. Right. The, the trip didn't contribute to the breakdown, <laughs> but the trip was not able to overcome the very real differences between the two countries. Mm -hmm. The North Koreans you know, right now in the news are continuing to pursue their nuclear program with great energy and determination, and they are testing missiles in launching them into the Pacific. This has created tremendous um, distress among countries in Asia. So in that sense, if we try to evaluate the extent to which the trip contributed to progress, I think we would have to say, no, in fact, it did not contribute to, to progress. Yes, people were transported for an evening or for a few hours by the music they heard. It was a, That's a beautiful thing to behold. But if one is thinking about the realm of diplomacy and international relations, I think it's clear that the trip did not really achieve much or anything at all. Some things, some problems are just a little bit too complicated and they need more than one concert to, yes. to fix that. yes. I think we're, that's exactly right. I think we're asking too much of classical music if we expect it to um, contribute to those, that sort of progress. It's just, that's not something that classical music, at least in my estimation, can uh, help to achieve. It can do, it, it, it does many wonderful things, and I, it's a huge part of my life, certainly, and the lives of many, many people. Um, but the, the problems that, that uh, plague the world, particularly the problems of nuclear weapons and authoritarian regimes, classical music is really not particularly well positioned to help overcome those problems. And I say that again with not a hint of with not a hint of glee or happiness. I say it with considerable sorrow. But what we can take comfort in is that on the personal level and on the human side of it, politics outside of it music can bring people together on a one-to-one -one sort of aspect. You can have these beautiful moments Absolutely. of of peace and humanizing the other through yes. music. And I think we can take comfort in that, even if it's not creating world peace yes. by itself. 
and I think we should all we should all continue to try to listen to music and support music and and yeah. um, and realize that as you say on a personal level and even beyond that if one is in a concert hall which has become a little bit more difficult in the last few years but if one is in a concert hall with thousands of people that that can be and is a beautiful experience as people connect with one another in a kind of uh, indescribable way or a way that is very difficult to put into words yes music can do all of that and that's no small thing as for these other things on the international stage i think that is simply um as i said asking it to do too much so we just need to recognize where its strengths are and just keep going with that yes i would agree so maybe one concert doesn't have the power to completely change the tides of international politics But that doesn't mean that music doesn't have the power to change society and to improve lives. Dr. Rosenberg's next big project shows how, in sometimes surprising ways, music can do exactly that. I'm writing a book now on American jazz musicians who went overseas in the 20th century and sort of settled down overseas, and in Europe particularly. And as I try to make the case, in in an unexpected way, helped to sort of change the world by disseminating this extraordinary art form uh, across the world. So that's that's the larger project I'm working on. It's a book called The Jazz Expats. Well, I can't wait to read that one. And I'll definitely have you back to talk about that. I'm, I'm fascinated with that as well. Thank you. Dr. Jonathan Rosenberg, thank you so much for being here. Um, I just appreciate all of the knowledge and all of the stories that you were able to tell and teaching us more about politics and and the power of music and the limitations of music. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast in my discussion with Jonathan Rosenberg, Juilliard-trained musician and Harvard-trained historian. If the idea of music being intertwined in politics interests you, you can hear our first conversation together in the episode When Music and Politics Meet from May 2022. Even better, look for Jonathan's book, Dangerous Melodies, Classical Music in America from the Great War Through the Cold War, at your local library or wherever you buy your books. I will have links to that, as well as more information on Jonathan's research and the resources mentioned today in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Musicians versus the world is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. Throughout this episode, you've heard excerpts from Dvorak's New World Symphony No. 9, which was one of the pieces performed at the New York Philharmonic Concert in North Korea. This recording was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, with Barbara Schubert conducting. And it is shared here with a Creative Commons license from IMSLP. If you have enjoyed today's episode, and I hope that you have, please help us out and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts or share it with your friends. It helps to make our show easier to find so that we can reach more people. Thank you so much for your help. Also, if you'd like to reach us, we'd love to hear from you. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook or send us an email at info at frostedlens.com. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.